Okay, well, good evening. Tonight we're looking at uh, really the continuation of the Reformation in England. And uh, so the English Reformation and the emergence of Puritanism. This is a, a very well-known 19th century portrait of the king, um, Edward VI, under God. Uh, Edward VI, even though he only reigned six years, he was 10 years old when he became king, died at the age of 16, and yet he was the kind of the key figure um, in terms of ruling authorities that enabled the Reformation to take root in England. And uh, this is Hugh Latimer. Um, at that time, this is probably, Hugh is probably in his late 60s at this point. And uh, probably the best preacher of his day. Um, we have about 30 of his sermons. And I'll say a little bit more about uh, Hugh Latimer. And um, if you remember the, the church in Lyon, where it was in the round, and there was a dog. Well, here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think this was a greyhound, but whatever. Uh, uh, Whippet, maybe, yes. Beautiful dogs, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, we don't find dogs in churches today, but they obviously did them. Okay, let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, uh, for your grace in bringing us here, and for the privilege of thinking about the past, our past as Christians. Pray that our words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts, may be pleasing in your sight, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, um... I'm not going to touch on Wycliffe and Tyndale. Uh, maybe I say a little bit about them. I will say something of what we call the historiography of the English Reformation. The English Reformation is a major battleground currently in terms of historians. Um, not so much about the, some of the facts, but what, what do they mean? What actually is going on in England in the uh, period of the 1500s? And then I'm going to spend a bit of time on the House of Tudor, but particularly Henry VIII and his six wives. Um, part of the, the debate about the English Reformation that is not the same with the French or the German is that the English Reformation is deeply intertwined with politics. And you can't escape, if you're t teaching it or reading about it, you just can't escape Henry VIII and his six wives and what that meant for the course of the English Reformation. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about Thomas Cranmer. Um, who is the architect of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, this is probably the most important book that English-speaking evangelicals produce in the Reformation. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Book of Common Prayer. I'm eternally grateful that when I went to, to seminary, I went to an evangelical Anglican seminary where I was exposed to the Book of Common Prayer I lived in residence for nearly three years, so that meant every morning before breakfast, every evening before dinner, we had morning and evening prayer. And then on Wednesday, I wouldn't necessarily agree with this now because of my position on Lord's table, but we had Holy Communion. And um, this was a 1662 uh, Book of Common Prayer. It's essentially the one that Thomas Cranmer drew up, and it is, it is a really very rich um, prayer book. And uh, Baptists, and we, we won't have time in this uh, time together, but if we do a kind of succession to this in the, in the spring, where we look at the course of Puritanism, the emergence of Baptists, and then eventually the revival of the 18th century, um, the Church of England will use the Book of Common Prayer as a weapon to enforce uh, uniformity, religious uniformity in England. They will argue and pass by law that if you do not worship according to the Book of Common Prayer, your worship is illegal. And um, that kind of weaponization of the Book of Common Prayer turned Baptists, and among others, off written prayers altogether. And so the consequence is we don't use a written liturgy. And um, uh, 
I think it would be very difficult, given our context, to bring in any sort of kind of written prayers into our worship service. I think it would be helpful, to be honest. Um, I'm not thinking of here, but I've heard of I've I've heard people pray publicly, uh, and I've heard heresy prayed. Um, I remember hearing Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, at a women's conference. I wasn't there, I was listening to it. And uh, she prayed ahead of time. And what I heard that, that in that prayer was heresy. She uh, thanked the Father for dying for, her, for them. And uh, now you might be thinking, yeah, man, you're a meanie. You know, she's probably not thinking. And uh, the syntax of her prayer. I've heard that also. I was at... Um, I was going to name it. I won't. It's a big church here in southern Ontario. And um, I've only been there once in worship. And the youth pastor prayed this time. And again, it was, he thanked the Father for dying for us. So I remember coming home, telling my wife, I said, I, I think I'm going to write to the senior pastor and tell him. She said, you'll do no such thing. <laughs> I, I, I thank God for wise wives, discerning. And uh, I'm glad I didn't write. But um, uh, written prayers are helpful because they, they help you avoid that sort of thing. Now, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, okay, so um, uh, written prayers, it's not coming from the heart. But what the written prayers are doing, they're giving you habits of prayer. And we're people of habit. And uh, I remember when I first started going to Stanley Avenue Baptist Church and the prayer meeting midweek. And there was one brother who would stand up, a dear brother, and every prayer he always prayed always began with the same three or four lines. I always knew who it was, you know. Or I was at Peter Masters Church, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I'd been to the worship service a number of times, and so I'd heard Peter Masters pray publicly, and he has a bit of a unique way of praying. When I went to the prayer meeting one time, the only time, everybody in the church prayed like him. I, I, I thought, man, I know exactly what church they've been exposed to. They've been listening to Peter Masters pray for 25 years, and they all pray like him. And so prayer is something we pick up by osmosis. In fact, we actually do a very bad job at prayer in this sense. We don't teach people how to pray, right? We expect, okay, you sit in the church and you learn it. But uh, prayer is a, a learned thing. And I think, I think to some degree, written prayers are helpful because they break you out of your rut. And so I think if, if the, uh, the Baptists of this period, and they will reject written prayers completely, if they've been able to incorporate written prayer with extemporaneous prayer to some, somehow use them both in connection, I think it would have been helpful. But that's all off to the side. And then we want to talk a little bit about Lady Jane Grey, the Marian Martyrs, uh, and if we have time, Elizabeth I, James I, and the KJV. Um, I'm going to jump over Wycliffe. We've already looked at him. Tyndale, we've looked at him. The Tudors. Now, the Tudors, uh, as you know, the various periods in English history have uh, various houses. So we're in the House of Windsor, correct? Yeah. So we have Charles III, and before him was his mother. And before her, her father, who was a godly Christian, George VI. And before George VI was uh, Wee Eddie. <laughs> that's, that's the way my wife calls him. Uh, Edward VIII, who, if you remember, was uh, only king. Wait, I'm not expecting you to actually remember 1936 <laughs> when he abdicated. But it was a big shock to marry an American uh, divorcee, uh, Wallace Simpson. And then before him was uh, George V, and before George V was um, Edward VII, who is a bit of a wastrel, and then uh, Queen Victoria. And that's the House of Windsor. It used to be called the House of Saxe-Coburg, because Queen Victoria's mother tongue was German. And she was born in Saxe-Coburg, eventually comes to England, um, and marries a German prince, Albert. But during the First World War, it was, it was politically incorrect for the royal house to have a German name, and so they renamed it Windsor. So if you go back before 
before the House of uh, Windsor, you have the uh, Georgian, the Georges, George I, Second, Third, Fourth. They're easy to remember. William the Fourth, and before the before the Georgians, you have the Stuarts. Uh, James the First, who I mentioned there, is the first of the Stuarts. James the First, Charles the First, Charles the Second, uh, James the Second, William and Mary, Queen Anne. They're the Stuarts. And then before them, you have the Tudors. Uh, for some reason, certain uh, certain houses attract real interest. So uh, most people find the Georgians completely boring. Uh, I'm teaching a course at Redeemer on Georgian history. I, I find the Georgian period, the 18th century, absolutely fascinating. If there was any century I would love to have been born in, in some ways, uh, they didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have painkillers, so <laughs> remember that. Uh, it will be the 18th century. I, the 18th century to me is absolutely fascinating. Um, but the Tudors are of enormous interest for people. So I don't know how many books have been written on this man, Henry VIII, and his six wives, and um, Elizabeth. As Elizabeth is a young queen. So this is the uh, head of the Tudor household, Henry VII. He becomes king in 1485 after a very bloody civil war, lasted 30 years, destroyed probably half the British aristocracy because after every battle was over in medieval warfare, you normally didn't kill the, uh, the dukes, the lords, the earls. doesn't matter what you about, do about the peasants. <laughs> they don't amount to anything in the mindset. But you don't want to kill the aristocracy because you want to capture them and ransom them for money. And somebody got, came up with a bright idea. It wasn't a bright idea. Why don't we just kill the aristocracy we defeat at the end of the battle? That just meant every battle was going to be basically deeply bloody because you knew if you lost it, you're dead anyway. And uh, during the, during the uh, Wars of the Roses, 1545 to four, 1485 to 1485, a vast amount of aristocracy were killed. And this man comes to the throne and... That meant then that the power, the powers of the aristocracy were de weakly, significantly diminished. The king could now exact all kinds of laws without opposition to some degree. And so, um, but he's very concerned about, um, about not having a male heir. A lot of monarchs in the medieval period didn't believe a woman could rule. A country, and so he drilled into his son Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, that you've got to have a male child. So uh, the other thing that's going on in this period is power politics. Um, England is at war on a number of occasions with their mortal enemies to the north, the Scots, and the Scots are allied to the French. Uh, the French are the mortal enemy of the English. The English have fought a hundred years' war in the Middle Ages against them. Um, and then again in between 1690 and 1815, 125 years, the French and the English fought a war every decade. England was virtually a war the entire 125 years. At the end of that war, they have basically defeated the French and we have the British Empire. And the British Empire, by 1900, rules about... A half of the world, maybe more. It's huge. Um, and its foundations are laid here. And uh, so uh, Henry wants to maintain power against the French and the Scots. So he marries his eldest son, who's not depicted here, Arthur, to a Spanish Roman Catholic princess, Catherine of Aragon. And, but problematically, Arthur's dead within a year. And so uh, um, Henry the Seventh, the Henry the Eighth, Henry his second son is now the heir to the throne. Henry the Seventh writes to the Pope Julius the Second and said, um, "Do you think you could grant permission for the widow of, Hen of Arthur, Catherine, to marry my second son?" And I should mention to you that the marriage was never consummated. Now. Okay, so there's a beanie here, 
I, I don't know. I mean, we don't have intimate details, so. And to the Pope, yeah, if you, yeah, if you send us X amount of money, we can find the document. <laughs> so the X amount of money was sent, and the document was sent, and Henry is duly married to Catherine of Aragon. Now, this is, this is Henry in his older years. Henry in his younger years was around six foot two. I mean, that's huge. I, I, I would be tall in the Middle Ages in this period. I'm only five foot six. It, it doesn't give me any uh, comfort to think that, but nonetheless, I think, I'm, I, think I'm, I am past, long time past. All my friends in high school were over six feet. And I really, it really kind of gave me a bit of an inferiority complex. Uh, but I'm long past that, you know? There's nothing you can do about it, right? <laughs> And um, Henry's tall, huge man, six or two, red hair. That's not a good thing, if you remember. Um, I just found out, I was teaching a, a history course on the history of women and the history of the church, that there apparently is in Ontario, um, it came up, it started in the last 10 years, uh, Kick a Ginger Day. Have you heard about this? I couldn't believe it. And I Googled it. Sure enough, about some Ontario high school, some high schoolers came up with "Kick a Ginger Day." Uh, it's horrifying. Anyway, uh, so red hair was a liability, but Henry had a huge shock of red hair. Sixty, enormously athletic. He used to be in the uh, joust, you know, where the um, uh, knights ride each other, not try to knock each other off horseback. Um, he loved doing that. Very dangerous. The King of France, Henri the uh, Henri Quatre, Henry the Fourth was actually killed. He got a splinter of a lance in his eye and killed him. So very dangerous sport. Henry was a musician, played a number of stringed instruments. He composed music and he wrote theology, could speak a number of languages. He was a very, very gifted man. Very handsome man in his early years. Um, very athletic. He was also a bit of a, a psychopath too. But that's <laughs> off to the side. So, he's married to Catherine. Uh, finally, his father dies in 1509. He becomes king. And um, Catherine has a baby boy in 1560. Baby girl, 1516, whom she calls Mary. And then she has a number of stillborn children, miscarriages. Henry's young, Catherine's young, no big deal. By the mid-1520s, Henry's getting antsy. Okay, I've been married to, to her for nearly 20 years, and she can't give me a male heir. Now, everything we know today is not just the woman's fault, right? But this is a man's world, it's always the woman's fault that he can't have a male heir. And um, so Henry is, he's a Bible scholar of, of sorts. He actually wrote a book against Martin Luther, and the Pope gave him the title Fides Defensor, Defender of the Faith. Our queen, our king, still has that title. You may remember a few years ago, there was a brouhaha when uh, Charles said, I think I'd like to be defender of faith. Because he's, he's, a, he's a major patron of a number of Islamic institutions in Britain. And there was a big brouhaha. And I was very interested when he was crowned, what he was going to say. And he actually gave a commitment to be the defender of the faith. Because I think, I think the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, told him, like, you ain't going to get away with this one. Just defender of faith. It's defender of the faith. Um, that title comes from Henry VIII. The Pope gave it to him because he wrote a book against Luther. When Henry breaks with the Roman Catholic papacy, he'll keep the title. <laughs> <laughs> so Henry's, Henry's reading his Bible, and he hits the passage in Leviticus, Thou shalt not marry thy brother's wife which has got to do with divorce, but Henry sees there's a principle here. I should never have married her. My dad was wrong to ask the Pope to give me a, you know, an annulment of that marriage. Um, no, no, I, I should never. God's curse is on a marriage. That's why she can't have a son. So he writes to the Pope and says, look, I think God's curse is on my marriage. Uh, here's X amount of money. Can you give me a bill of annulment? Which meant that Aztec Queen Catherine has lived in a sin, undisguised sin, for this man she's not married, 
for the last 20 years. And uh, the Pope would have done it. There's no such thing as divorce in medieval Roman Catholicism. I'm not sure what Roman Catholic thinking is today, but in medieval Catholicism, you, there's no such thing as divorce. There's annulment of the marriage. It, it's just plain with words. But what it means is, it, it means that your marriage is never being legitimate, and any children are illegitimate. And the Pope would have done it. The problem is, Queen Catherine is the aunt of the most powerful man in Europe, Charles V of Spain. Charles finds out, he writes to the Pope, he says, you do that, you shame my aunt in front of all of Europe, it's the last thing you'll ever do as Pope. Well, so the Pope's caught between a rock and a hard place, as we say. And so he kind of stalls for time. Now remember, it would take probably about nine months for a letter to get from Britain to Rome. And they deliver, you know, maybe another, it might be a year and a half before you find out a reply. So he's kind of stalling for time. Maybe one of them will give this up. Maybe one of them would die. You know, that would solve my problem. Well, neither, they're both young. They're not going to die. And um, Henry, Henry's really upset by this. He, as time goes on, he's deeply distressed by this. I've got to have an heir. Catherine can't give me an heir. I've got to get rid of her. And so he asks a number of theologians in Britain, what should I do? They say, well, why don't you write to all the theological faculties? Have I gone through all this before? No. Why don't you write to all the theological faculties in Europe? About a hundred of them. And ask them this question. Um, I'm married to a woman who I think is under the curse of God. You know, what should I do? Because the Pope won't give me an annulment. And there's about a hundred faculties right back. It'd be like our prime minister now. He's already done this. But would that would that he had written to all the theological faculties in Canada? You know, Sophie and I have got issues. What do you think we should do? Here are the issues. Can you please have a conference and send back a report? And that's it. And it was known as that King's Privy Matter. That is the king's private matter. So everybody in Europe knew about this. <laughs> and about 100, 100 conference reports were sent back. I remember thinking about 10 years ago, man, nobody ever has, I wonder if anybody's read all these. It'd be a fabulous PhD study. Well, sure enough, somebody did it about three years ago and published their PhD on it. And um, somebody in England comes up with a bright idea and says, if you were the head of the Church of England, you can grant your own divorce. I don't know if you've heard about these. I don't know how American politics works. Works these recent things about you know Trump's facing 91 charges of criminal activity. He could end up in prison and win the election, which means he could pardon himself. Except in Georgia. What's that? Except in Georgia. Except in Georgia. I mean, it's bizarre. But this is the same sort of scenario. If you were the head of the church, you could get your own divorce. Bingo. And bingo, he's got a solution. By 1534, he has passed an act of supremacy. Every churchman in England has to swear allegiance to him as the head of the church. He uses that phrase. Elizabeth, when she becomes queen, will use the phrase supreme governor. And because um, she knows... That Jesus is the head of the church, so he she's the governor of the church under under uh, Christ. A number of Roman Catholics refused to. One of whom is Sir Thomas More. You remember from last day, and Henry chops his head off. And so Henry Henry's reign is it's tumultuous. Here are the six wives. There's Catherine. He divorces her. In 1533, packs her off to a nunnery. At least, he, at least he leaves her alive. Um, when she does die in the 1540s, she writes to Henry and says, I will, She's a Spanish Roman Catholic princess. She's the aunt of the King of Spain, the most powerful monarch of Europe. She said, I would like a royal funeral in Westminster Abbey or Westminster Cathedral. Um, and he refuses. But, you can go fly a kite for all I'm concerned, you know. And uh, she's buried privately by a number of monks in Peterborough Cathedral. 
And uh, I was in Peterborough Cathedral about four years ago, and I had no idea she was buried there. And you're going along, looking at all the tombs, a lot of these cathedrals, and there's Mary. But actually, she's not there, because when um, uh, uh, she was uh, uh, buried there, uh, sorry, there's Catherine. Uh, when she was buried there, she was buried there for a number of years, and then her daughter Mary digs her up and buries her in Westminster. Um, it's, it's, it's very sad. Here she is, a Spanish Catholic princess, stuck in a country she's not her own, basically shunned, uh, etc. Um, Henry's already got his eyes on this woman, Anne Boleyn, see the little bee there? He's already had a relationship with her sister, Mary, and um, she's a lady-in-waiting of Catherine of Aragon. Uh, if I was a queen of the king, I'd be very cautious about who I chose as my ladies in waiting. Um, she's married to Henry for a thousand days, Anne of a thousand days. You may remember that movie with uh, I think Catherine Deneuve and uh, I forget who played Henry. Uh, Henry, as I said, Henry's relationship with Anne Boleyn is, is a fascinating one. She's an evangelical. She convinces Henry, among other things, you need to have a Bible in every church in the English language. Uh, she has a daughter. Um, her daughter is... Uh, let me go back and I'll show you Catherine's daughter. Uh, there's Catherine's daughter, Mary. And uh, there's Anne Boleyn's daughter. Uh, who had red hair. That's Elizabeth. Um, Anne has a daughter. Well, Henry's not too concerned. She's young. I'm pretty young. And um, then she gets pregnant a second time, a stillborn son. No, no, she must have been up to monkey business. He trumps up charges that she was up to incest with her brother. And most scholars who've studied the legal charges now, we have fairly extensive legal proceedings, will conclude it's the whole thing was just trumped up. She's imprisoned and she's executed. And he, mar he marries Jane Seymour, who is a lady-in-waiting of Ampelin. Uh, she's an evangelical. She is a hardcore, radical evangelical. Now, you might be thinking, like, okay, why would any of these women marry the king? Well, you don't have a choice, right? You know? I think I want to marry you. Well, I don't think I want to marry you. <laughs> that is not the option, you know? The option is either marriage to me or I'm going to chop your head off. I mean, pretty much everybody who's in the inner circle around Henry loses his head, except for a few people. I mean, he's, he's kind of a, a Tudor Saddam Hussein. I mean, he's a complete nutter. Uh, or he's narcissistic. Um, so Jane, Jane Seymour, her brother was writing regularly to John Calvin on how to conduct the Reformation. And um, she gets pregnant and has a son. And Edward's ecstatic. Sorry, Henry's ecstatic. The son is the son is Edward. Uh, right there, the boy king. See the E, uh, Edwardus the Rex. Um, she contracts septicemia in childbirth. I mean, this is the day in which doctors have no idea about germs. Uh, they don't discover germs until Madame Curie in the middle of the 19th century. So it would not. It would often happen. Well, not, no doctors ever wash their hands when examining patients uh, during childbirth. Midwives would normally be attending, but they would be part of the procedure. And it's not surprising, anywhere between 35, depending on the country, to 50% of women uh, uh, often died in childbirth in this period. Uh, childbirth was a very dangerous uh, procedure. Uh, we've, we've lost all... Here in Canada, we, because of our medical system, we've lost all of that, um, uh, thankfully. But other parts of the world, it's still that way. Um, she dies of septicemia two weeks later. She's buried in the center aisle of St. George's Chapel. If you watch the funeral of our queen, she's buried a few feet from where our queen is buried. And that's where Henry's buried. If you ever go to England, uh, 
Windsor Castle is incredible. I've never been there till about a few years ago, and I couldn't believe how fabulous it is. And that's where Henry and Jane are buried. Um, I gotta be married, Henry says. So one of his courtiers, Thomas Cromwell, arranges a marriage with this woman, Anna Cleves, who is a German princess. She's never met Henry, he's never met her, but they've seen pictures of each other. Uh, the picture that Anne gets sent is Henry like 25 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not told exactly what kind of picture Henry has sent, but he has some very derogatory words when he meets her. He's horrified. She's horrified too. Uh, I've no idea. I have a book on Anacles. I don't know if we know if the marriage was consummated. Uh, but Henry's furious. Thomas Cromwell arranged a marriage, chops Thomas's head off. I mean, like, it, you don't want to be around this guy. And then he said, okay, I'm, so much for arranged marriages, I'm going to find my own wife. And he marries an English aristocrat named Catherine Howard. Henry, by this point, is in his 50s. Let's see, he marries her in 1541. So Henry is about 56. She's 18. And she's a Howard, and the Howards are Catholic. Uh, they have the Duke and Duchess of Norfolk. For some reason, the Dukes and Duchess of Norfolk were able to hang on to their Roman Catholicism all through this period and down to the present day. It's very, very unusual, because normally all the British aristocracy are Anglican, but they're not. And um, she gets caught in flagrante, right? committing adultery with a young man. He chops her head off. And then he marries Catherine Parr, who is an evangelical. So when, when, he's, when he's married uh, Catherine Howard, um, Thomas Cranmer is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was, the Archbishop, he was the Archbishop who arranged the divorce here and was involved in the marriage here. In fact, Thomas went in when the king had raised charges against, trumped up charges against Anne. Uh, Thomas went in and said, you're wrong on this. You should not do this. And uh, you don't speak to a king like that. But he listened to him. Well, he, he listened, but he didn't heed him. Um, uh, Thomas uh, Cramner, uh, when he's married, when Catherine Howard becomes queen, suddenly now everything Roman Catholic is fashion fashion, and Thomas, because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, should be celibate, so he has to send his wife to the continent for like three years to pretend he's not married. I mean, you, you wouldn't have known where they were coming or going during Henry's reign. But she is an evangelical. She's responsible for She's responsible for the conversion of this woman, Lady Jane Grey, and also Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, uh, Catherine Parr, which is here, is quite a remarkable Christian. She wrote a few books that are still in, are in print, and she was really a very godly woman. Again, what was it like to live with a man like that? You know, he's, he's, um, he's a philanderer. Um, given to rages, chopping people's heads off, etc. And she will outlive him. So growing up in England, we had a little rhyme, how to remember them. Uh, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And that, that's how you remember what happened to each of the six. Um, so that's, that's part... So when you deal with the English Reformation, there's nothing like it in Germany or France, where the, ki the king basically uh, breaks with Rome, but he doesn't break with Rome because of Protestantism, he breaks with Rome because of his marriage scenario. But at the same time, you've got William Tyndale preaching the gospel, and you've got Thomas Cramner. Um, this is Thomas Cramner just when he became an evangelical, and one of the ways, I think I might have mentioned this, the way you, you identify a, an evangelical and, if, if it's a man, 
from a Catholic is evangelicals have beards. And that's a beard, right? <laughs> and uh, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he's a scholar. Um, he went up to Oxford, uh, Cambridge, sorry. And that's where he would have been most content. But he's involved in uh, when the, 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 the request comes from the king, can you please write out how I'm going to solve my marital problem? He's involved in working that out. And the king takes a liking to him and makes him Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, during the time of Catherine Howard, he's the one who arranges the divorce of Catherine of Catherine of Aragon, she never forgives him. Mary, her daughter, will never forgive him. She loathes him. That's important. Um, he's also involved in uh, encouraging uh, marriage to Jane Seymour when he's chopped off Anne Boleyn's head. He tries to prevent that. He fails. And he's also involved in... Uh, he's the chaplain of uh, Catherine Parr. When... Uh, Henry dies finally in, in, in uh, 1547. Edward now is king. I'm sorry for all this detail. I mean, it, it is overwhelming in some ways. And so this young boy is king. He's 10. Calvin, John Calvin writes to him and says, Just as God raised up King Josiah, so he has raised up you to reform the nation. And by the age of 12, he's actually writing his own little essays on the Reformation in English and Latin. We have about a hundred of them. And it's very clear that this young man, by the age of 12 to 14, was a committed Christian. It's, quite, it's really quite remarkable. And he gives Thomas Cranmer a free hand to revise the Book of Common Prayer. And this is the prayer book that would guide worship. Um, prayer book for morning and evening prayer. Uh, that will become part of evangelical, the evangelical world by uh, the quiet time, right? That idea, you spend a portion of the morning in prayer and a portion of the evening in prayer before you go to bed. Um, but also, there are prayer services for Sunday, for various parts of the year, the church calendar, uh, for ordaining a bishop, for baptizing a child, for funeral, for marriage, and so on. And it, it's a really rich book. I don't agree, obviously, with all of it. Um, I do agree with the church year. I like the church year. Uh, Baptists historically uh, rejected the church year. The church year is, begins right with Advent, four weeks before Christmas. We're coming up to it. Then we, we Advent is the thinking about the second coming, then Christmas, and then Epiphany, showing Christ to the, to the wise man, to the Gentiles. And then you have that long period of preparation for Easter. Um, I'm not too keen on Lent, personally. Lent's a much later development. Um, but definitely uh, Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Christ coming into Jerusalem, um, Good Friday, the Resurrection on Easter Sunday. And then most importantly, 50 days later, Pentecost. I do not know why we never celebrate Pentecost. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's not biblical. Well, we celebrate Mother's Day, right? <laughs> right? I mean, we, when I was at Stanley Avenue, and I, I, I it's okay to do this, I guess, but uh, every year we always had, okay, all the mothers in the church stand. Um, and then we always went down, uh, who's the oldest mother? You know, and they got two or three roses. Who's the youngest mother? Uh, who's the mother who's just had a baby? I mean... I can spend 15 minutes doing this. And um, I don't know if we do the same with Father's Day. Uh, we've got all these days that we've added. Uh, why can't we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit? Even Pentecostals don't celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And then the week after Pentecost Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Uh, I won't take a poll tonight, but I've done this with my students at, at Southern. 150 students. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the Trinity in your life? So 150 students, most of them between the ages of 25 and 40. That's a lot of sermons. A lot of sermons. About two or three raise a hand. Well, you hardly ever speak about the Trinity. 
which is the most fundamental fact of our faith. The God we worship is Father, Son, and Spirit. And every year, if you follow the church calendar, every year, the first week after Pentecost Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Uh, when we, when the, historically, there will be a sermon preached on Trinity. So the church calendar, I think, is helpful. Um, of course, it's not enshrined in the Bible, um, but it's helpful. The Puritans will reject it, and the Baptists are the God of the Puritans. And some of the Baptists will say, Christmas and Easter are dumb from the God Baal. And it's really strong. And they would open all their shops on Christmas and Easter just to show, wait, wait, we are not beholden to the traditions of man. Um, but there are good traditions. We've all got traditions, right? We have traditions here. The way we take up the offering. The way we do the Lord's Supper. There's no details in the New Testament exactly how to do the Lord's Supper. Why do we do the little individual cups instead of the big, the one cup? Uh, I, I'm not arguing for the one cup. I remember I was at a small little Baptist church in Northern England about 20 years ago. I had spoken in the evening, and I came down at the pulpit, and I realized it was the Lord's Supper that night. They took the, the sheet off, and to my initial horror, there was a single cup. <laughs> now, I was, I was in an Anglican seminary, so we always had a single cup. But it was made out of silver. It always had wine. The person giving the cup uh, had a cloth to wipe it and turn it. But I'm thinking, okay, will this? It didn't look like silver. Number one, which is an antiseptic. Uh, wine is an antiseptic. I didn't know if it was going to be wine. And I'm thinking, there's no cloth to turn it. Just passing it down the road. <laughs> And then I realized because I'd been preaching, I'd come down, I was sitting right there. So when they came to give the cup, I'd be first. Ah! Okay. <laughs> I've never gone, and I, I chastised myself over the years, like, Michael, those are horrible thoughts. <laughs> so I'm not arguing for one cup, but like, why the individual? I know why the individual cups, it's pragmatic. It came in around 1900 when we had cholera and diphtheria, and especially now with COVID, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm not against the individual cup, but these are traditions, right? Uh, I was in a church in Louisville, a big church called Sojourn. They've got three campuses, and they do what's called intinction. I didn't even know what, I'm sure story. I had no idea what intinction was until I went to the church. What's intinction? You dip it. Yeah, very good. I had no idea what that was. So you had to go forward, and you took the bread, and you dipped it, and then you partook. Um, we partake at the same time, right? Which I think is, we do, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is biblical. I don't know. Well, I like it. It's what, you know, stresses unity. But in this church, you go forward, and you take it by yourself. Uh, anyway, we have all kinds of traditions with that. And uh, as long as they're not violating Holy Scripture, um, I think there's room for, you know, that sort of thing within reason. So he, he, he crafts the Book of Common Prayer. Here's a couple of prayers. This is a very significant sentence in the Lord's Supper. Um, because I took the Lord's Table at Wycliffe College every week, some of the prayers are kind of drilled into my head. And this is, the, this is one, I'd say parts of it, at our own Lord's Supper. It is so rich. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, which of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, now this is, the, this is very critical, who made there, uh, by his one oblation, sacrifice, of himself, once offered, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice and oblation and satisfaction of the sins of the whole world. In that beginning there and ending there, that undermines the entire Roman Catholic medieval system. Right. It's amazing. He could pack into one little sentence. Christ's death is once and for all. We don't offer him again and again and in the last. We don't need to because it was full and perfect. We don't need to keep offering Christ. We don't need to add our works to it. His death was perfectly sufficient for every one of our sins. 
and for the whole sins of the whole world. Does that mean Christ, everybody's saved? No, it does mean that if God purposed this, the death of Christ for all, it is sufficient for all. It is infinite in value. It's an amazing statement. And Cranmer is just a very fabulous theologian. That's a really beautiful little prayer. Uh, this is a, an early uh, book of the Common Prayer. Please note, familiar familiarity does not always breed contempt. It may nurture devotion. True. I mean, one thing I think sometimes we as Baptists think, and Pentecostals are the same idea, and AGC and CMA or whatever, is that the Holy Spirit needs to be free to do a fresh thing every week. But I think it's helpful to have patterns of devotion. So you're not always trying to figure out, okay, what are they going to do this week? Right? So having patterns of devotion are not wrong. This is the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. This is beautiful. Cranmer uh, devised a collect for every week. A collect is a little prayer. Uh, it comes from the Latin word collecta. It doesn't mean collect, as we use it. It means to bring together a, a variety of parts of a prayer. Each collect has about four or five parts. I won't go into details of that. But this is a fabulous prayer that he wants for England. Blessed Lord, which has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us we may in such wise hear them. So hear the word of God on a regular basis. Read them by ourselves. Mark them. That is, study and learn them and inwardly digest them. So what, what, what's the importance of hearing the Word of God every week? That you might hear it. That it might encourage you to read the Word of God by yourself and study it and learn it and consume it. It's not enough to be, yeah, I'm a great Bible scholar, but is it part of your inner being? And what, 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 what's that? That's meditating. We, we, we uh, do this with little kids, right? We have them memorize scripture. But you should be memorizing scripture. Why? So you can meditate on it during the day. When you're driving long distances and it's a boring drive. All the lines we have to stand in, right? You go to the bank and it's a Friday afternoon. You're standing in this line. Or a checkout at a grocery store. What do you do? What, what do you think about when you're there? You know, you're mumbling and grumbling about the length of the line. No, no. Yeah, sorry? What do I have to pay? Yeah, <laughs> what do you have to pay for? Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, but scripture. One is I often do, and I'm, I think that I, I pray for the person I'm going to talk to when I get to the cash register. And I usually try to talk to them. I'm an introvert. There's some people who are extrovert, and this is, this is their bread and butter. I have, I have a former student named David, and he was, I mean, talk about an expert. I mean, he's, 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 off, the, he's off the scale. And uh, I found out recently, he's, he, he does, um, uh, he's the guy when you go to the airport and uh, he checks your baggage at, um, uh, before you get on the plane and all that. I mean, that, it's perfect for this guy. He just loves to talk to people. Um, I'm... Not exactly like that. Um, I mean, I love talking to people, but there's a limit. Uh, so I'm, we're going to, my wife and I are going to a conference next week. It's three days, 600 papers in three days. You can't see them all. Um, four to 5,000 scholars, it's in San Antonio. Probably 150 of my students are there. And by the end of it, I'm just absolutely drained. I normally don't go to the papers anymore. I just go and talk to people I know. And it, but it's draining for me. Others, this is their bread and butter. I mean, they're just high as a kite the whole time. And in fact, there are three conferences. I only go to the first. But you can actually do uh, about eight days of conference. I, I don't know how people do it. I mean, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just drained after three days of having to give all the time. And it's a very, it's very important for me. 
you're keeping in touch with former students. One of the things I learned uh, as I went along with teaching was that you, I always thought, okay, in the early years, I thought, okay, you teach them, you get them across that stage and graduate, and <laughs> off you go. Right, so, you know, 10 years later, they're kind of like, you know, can you help me get a job? I'm serious. And so I, I, that's part of, I, I see that as part of my responsibility. I trained the guy, yeah, or a woman, I, I need to help them. So these conferences are draining. And, um, but uh, my point here is, uh, what am I doing when I'm standing in that line for a cash register? Well, I, I try to think about something. I'm not just grumbling about, you know, uh, the people in front of me. Uh, the ones I don't like are when I go to the corner store and you got all these people trying to buy lotto tickets. <laughs> and that, that yeah, I, I think in term, I don't know, uh, whatever. <laughs> but in my better moments, uh, oh, yeah, I've got a scripture text. I can think about that. Or I can pray about this person in front of me. Or uh, uh, the cashier. You know, when you go up and, you know, how are you? How was your day? And uh, when did you start your shift? When did you finish? Just little things. Because they're human beings, right? They're not just machines. They're human beings who have lives. And who knows how these connections can lead. Uh, but this is, a, this is a beautiful prayer. That by the patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. How is it that we persevere in the gospel? By the word of God. That's why it's important to hear the word, read the word, study the word. Um, by the time you get to my age and the age of some of us here. Uh, you've seen Christians start and they don't finish well. Right? Years ago I heard a, a man in Helmut Bain, so you know Helmut Bain maybe, say to students, you need to prepare for the last 10 years of your ministry. These guys are in their, men and women in their 20s. You need to think in your 60s and 70s. You need to build your life so you're prepared for that period. That is really wise. And one of the great challenges for the Christian life is perseverance. Persevering to the end. How do we do it? Well, one way is Scripture, Holy Scripture. Uh, these are some of the colleagues. I, I, I can jump over this. Edward uh, died in 1553. He got measles in the early part of the year, it went into TB. On his deathbed, he changed his father's will. Now, I think he was legit, that was legal, because he's the king. But his father's will has specified, if my, my son, Edward, dies without children, Mary is to be queen. But Mary is a hardcore Catholic. She can't stand the Reformation. He destroyed her parents' marriage. I think that tells you Henry, I'm not, I'm not sure where Henry stands in the Reformation. Like, you know, one moment he's a Catholic, one moment he's a Protestant. He makes his will like that. He must have known that Ed, Mary is going to bring back Catholicism and, and it'll, it'll be very difficult for Britain. Um, when he's dying, um, Cranmer is there. And Cranmer holds his hand. He couldn't speak. And he said to to Henry, squeeze my hand twice if you are trusting in the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and nothing else. And we're told that he squeezed his hand twice. So, maybe Henry was saved at the end. I, we don't know. Uh, we are thankful, by the way, it's not in our hands, right? It's not in our hands to determine who's saved and who's not saved. Um, but Mary was going to be in line to the throne, then after Mary, Elizabeth, and then after Elizabeth, if neither of them had children, Lady Jane Grey. And Edward knows that Lady Jane Grey is a very strong Christian. She's 15. He changes his father's will, and he nominates Jane Grey as his heir. 
He doesn't tell her. And when he dies, a courtier comes from where the king is, and in the, in the, he probably was in the Tower of London, which was a... Buckingham Palace is not built. It was used as royal residence. And he comes to a house called Zion House. And uh, Jane is there. Jane has no idea. He comes in and immediately falls on his knees before and addresses her as queen. She has no idea about this. Uh, she collapses. She faints. Uh, nobody can help her, right? You can't touch the king or queen's person. So if you're ever introduced to Charles, don't touch him first until he reaches out his hand. I think, didn't Trump do a big boo-boo on this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, okay. I don't know. Somebody should have told him in Washington, do not wait till the queen reaches out your hand. Don't go touching her. Anyway. He wouldn't listen. No, he wouldn't listen. Right. Right, yeah. I don't know if you followed any of the trial. Yes. You know, I'm thinking like, just shut up. <laughs> anyway. Um, so Jane, 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 finally she comes around. She kneels, publicly prays, if this be the Lord's will that he has brought the crown to her, may she rule for the good of England, for the glory of the church, the glory of God, uh, and to that end. She's queen for about two weeks. She signs two documents, Queen Jane. And uh, this woman, Mary, there's no way she's going to allow her cousin to become queen. doesn't matter that, what Edward has done with her father's will. Her father's will specified she was queen. So she marches on London. Uh, Jane is arrested. Jane's father goes out to meet Mary and says, We made a big mistake. He had been a big supporter of his daughter. We made a big mistake. I'm actually on your side. He abandons his daughter. I mean, he's a bit of a very despicable character. And then a, a, about a few months later, he thinks, oh, maybe I could start a rebellion, get my queen and daughter on the throne, which he does. Gets his head chopped off. And uh, Mary realizes Jane is a big liability. She could become a rallying point for rebellion. He doesn't, she doesn't want to execute her, but she's put on trial and she's condemned to death. Um, before she, and I don't know if I've given a text here, no. Before, um, before uh, she is executed, uh, Mary sends her chaplain, a man John Beckenham, to talk to, to Jane to convince her that she's, uh, she's wrong. If I can't save her body, I'll try to save her soul. It's Mary Stone. It's a fascinating dialogue. You can Google it. Uh, John Peckinham and Lady Jane. Uh, Jane wrote it down afterwards. And uh, three main questions John asked Jane. Uh, by what authority do you believe what you do? And Jane says, by Holy Scripture. And he says, no, no. Holy Scripture needs Mother Church to interpret it. Secondly, how are you saved? She says, by, by faith alone. And he says, no, no, it's faith and love working by works. And they have a debate about that. And then he asks her, so what about the Lord's table, the Mass? Do you not receive the very body and blood of Christ in the Mass? She says, no, I receive bread and wine. And then she says to him, when Jesus was at the Last Supper and he instituted the Last Supper, was not his body in front of him? So how could the bread now be his body? And uh, at that point he says, oh, we'll talk about this another time. <laughs> but he was so amazed at her. Um, he asked her, um, well, before he, was, before he asked her, she's leaving. And uh, 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 Jane says to, to him, you have, God has given you a great gift of utterance. May God also give you repentance. For I fear... Um, where you're going and I am going, uh, we will not see each other again. He's absolutely overwhelmed by, she's 15. He's overwhelmed by her ability to understand scripture, theology, and he asked her, when you are taken up to the scaffold, can I come with you? And uh, Jane gives, uh, Mary gives Jane two mercies. Number one, she doesn't burn her. Uh, she executes her 
by an executioner, and he's here in the portrait right there. It's got chopped off. This is Speckenham. And um, the second is it's a private execution. This, is, this is, looks like it's in the prison cell, but it was actually out in public. And this is a, a Victorian painting. The Victorians love this sort of thing, so it's a bit romantic, romanticized. But she did have a blindfold, and she wasn't able to find the block where she was to put her head. Uh, John Feckenham is reading the scripture. He reads Psalm 51 in Latin. In the middle of it, he breaks down weeping. And Jane goes over to finishes the psalm and actually comforts him. And then they blindfold her. And somebody sort of guided her to where she was to kneel and place her head, but nobody does. Until finally somebody jumps up. Uh, it might have been Feckenham did it, but it, in some counts it's another bystander and guides her. And into thy hands I commit my spirit were her last words. But not quite. In her prayer book, Book of Common Prayer, she gave to the jailer, um, she wrote three sentences at the front, in one in Greek, one in Latin, one in English. She's very gifted. Um, if justice be done to my body for its sins, my soul will be justified before God. Posterity will show me favor. And Jane Grey has become a really kind of an iconic figure of the Reformation in England. Uh, Faith Cook uh, has written a book on her. It's really great. Um, Jane Grey is really kind of a, a fabulous example of Christian faith. Caught up in the maelstrom of politics. I mean, when, when Mary marches on, uh, on London um, and Jane is uh, removed from being queen, Jane says to Mary, can I go home now? Like, it's quite clear she's been, there's a degree of political manipulation going on here. Um, but Mary's not satisfied with executing her. Um, she ex executes uh, Hugh Latimer. He's the guy right at the beginning of the book, of the first picture. Uh, Ridley. Uh, this is the place they were burned. It's in Oxford. It's on uh, 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 Broad Street. It's a street that leads to the Bodleian, the library, and Blackwell's bookstore. So. Blackwell's bookstore is one of, the world's big, one of the world's biggest bookstores. It's a very dangerous place. Now they've got a cafe there, so I can go and spend four or five hours, and when I get tired of looking at books, I can have coffee and tea. It's very dangerous. Um, but there is this cross there where they were burned. And then this is, this is on St. John's College, right, right opposite the cross. So the cross is here. And the college might be over here, this wall and the plaque on it. Opposite this point near the cross in the middle of Broad Street, Hugh Latimer and the one-time Bishop of Worcester, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London. And then a year later, Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, were burned for their faith in 1555, that's Latimer Ridley, and 1556, Cramner. Uh, Cramner, they imprisoned him. Uh, the, the queen couldn't burn him right away, because he'd been consecrated archbishop by the Pope. And so um, she has to write letters to the Pope to get him defrocked. That took about a year or so to come back. So then they went to a service, very degrading. They defrocked him from being archbishop, then defrocked him from being bishop, then defrocked him from being a, a, a priest or an elder, then defrocked him from being a deacon. Uh, they also brainwashed him so that uh, in prison um, he actually signed a document in which he denounced his Protestant faith. And um, she then, that wasn't enough. She, wanted, she was, she was going to burn him anyway. She hated him because of, what, of her mother's divorce. And uh, she, she brings him out in March of 1556 to St. Mary the Virgin. Uh, it's a church right there. You can still go there. This is where John Wesley would preach 200 years later. Uh, he must be born again. And the, the leadership of Oxford said, we will never have that man preach again in Oxford, uh, telling us we're not born again. This is where uh, C.S. Lewis preached uh, the, a great sermon called The Weight of Glory in 1940. It's a very, very um, rich church of rich tradition. 
This is where Cranmer was put on a platform. So think of this, a platform that covered maybe all these pews. He's stuck on there uh, in chains. Uh, the chains were taken off while he was standing there. He's in his 70s. He's been in prison for about two years, uh, brainwashed, and uh, a man preaches at him for, for a whole hour. And uh, then he was to read his statement in which the statement that he had denied his faith. And um, he begins, uh, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Christian, and I, I, I believe in the Holy Scriptures. I encourage you to be a faithful and loyal to the king and the queen, if you can, as, you know, as you can. But then he says, as for the idea that the Pope is the head of the church, I denounce him as the Antichrist. And at that, in the Mass, we receive the transubstantiated blood, body and blood of Christ. I, and they pull him down. They begin to yell at him, this is not what you sign. And he says, he basically said, look, I'm now facing life in heaven with my Lord Jesus, or hell with the devils. This is no time to dissemble. And he runs, he, he runs out of the church, and I've walked it, you can do it in about minute and a half, he runs in there to that spot to be burned. During, during the, his speech, he said, when I come to the fire, I will take my right hand that has signed those documents and put it first in the fire. So when they lit the fire, a bystander noticed him. This is hard to believe. He stuck his arm into the fire until it was burned right down to the bone. And the bystanders, Mary thought, okay, we bump these people off, everybody will go back to the Roman church. That's like they, they had the opposite effect. When men saw how these men and women saw how these men and women died, it had the opposite effect. Mary died very quickly. I apologize for the, the time. Mary died um, in 15, uh, 1558 and is succeeded by her sister. Elizabeth, who is a firm Protestant. And from this point on, England is firmly in the Protestant orbit, evangelical orbit. And uh, in two weeks, we're not meeting next week because I'm away, so two weeks tonight, we're Lord willing, we'll pick up the story here and look at the emergence of Protestantism. I want to talk about a little bit about Elizabeth, but I really want to talk about a woman named Brilliana Harley, uh, quite a name, um, or a Protestant lady, um, who uh, is just a remarkable mother. And I want to talk a little bit about her as a mother. Okay, let me pray, and then uh, look forward to seeing you in two weeks. No, no class then next week. Father, thank you again for our heritage. For those who loved you even to the point of death, we pray that we might be faithful to the end, that you might enable us by grace to persevere. Uh, may we learn from these who've gone before and live lives that honor you in this day. For Christ's sake, amen.